You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 304, European Perspectives with Ioana Bauer, Romania. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast here at Vanguard University's Global Center for Women and Justice in Orange County, California. This is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. I am so delighted today to have an in-studio guest, Ioana Bauer. She completed her anti-human trafficking certificate through Vanguard University. And I'm so proud of her. She's done all the work, but I just get to be proud. She has been a leader in Romania since 2010 in eradicating human trafficking. She has helped pilot survivor engagement projects nationally, internationally, through the UN and through the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. I'm especially intrigued with the ability she has to impact policy and legislation. She led an initiative in Romania to remove the statute of limitations for the crime of creating online child sexual abuse materials. And she spearheaded a new award-winning protection model, Compass, geared at preventing and identifying trafficking for Ukrainian refugees. We interviewed her about that in episode 282, so you can check that, and you can also remember what we said about her in her bio. So I'm going to dig right into this. And Ioana, I'm so happy to have you with us today. Thank you so much. It's amazing to be here. And again, I am awestruck by the fact that I'm in the presence of one of my mentors. I'm glad you were here. And just for our listeners, I want you to know the reason she's here on site is she was able to attend our Amplify event this weekend where she was recognized for her important work in the movement as she received our first ever Amplify Award. The theme of Amplify is every person, every action. We want to amp up our energy and our resources in combating human trafficking. We want every person, every action to count. So congratulations on receiving that award. Thank you so much. So I'm particularly interested in better understanding what's happening in the European Union. I was with a friend last week and they were excited. They were getting WhatsApp notices from the EU, the European Union, about a resolution that had just passed regarding prostitution. Can you give us some insight? Yeah, last week was a moment of celebration in the European Union as far as the anti-trafficking movement goes because 
although it is a non-binding legal document, this resolution talks about prostitution and it recognizes it as a form of violence against women. If we look at prostitution, 90% of the people who are victimized through it are women and girls. And then if we look at sex trafficking, so human trafficking for the purpose of sexual exploitation, 87% of the victims are women and girls. Therefore, it's important to have the right terminology and to look at prostitution and at its role that it plays in this. So with this resolution, what we're saying is that you know, MEPs voted on the fact that prostitution is violence against women. They voted on the fact that we should not blame the victims. We should not look at the people who are pushed into this, either by circumstances or other people. But we should actually look at the other factor that oftentimes goes unnoticed, respectively the demand. Who are the people who are willing to pay for the exploitation of others? So this resolution is providing different provisions. It's basically recommendations that the states should look at how to protect victims, how to make sure that we're not putting the burden on the vulnerable people to not be vulnerable anymore, And it's also looking at exit programs, services that people can access, and basically alternatives. Okay, so this resolution is actually a docket of recommendations for governments. It doesn't actually have any legislative power, but it does build our collective agreement on what next steps need to be taken. Is that a good understanding? It is. And I think more than that, it should also be seen as a statement that was made because this was voted, right? Members of the European Parliament came and voted. And the majority of them said, yes, we agree with what is in here. Okay. And you used another acronym that isn't part of my U.S. vocabulary. I think you called them MEPs. Tell us what that means. Oh my goodness. Yes. And this is something that we all suffer from when we work (laughs) too long in a certain field. So MEPs simply means members of the European Parliament. Okay. MEP, members of the European Parliament. And it's so good for us to begin to understand what's happening globally because the intersection, um, the overlaps from one country, from one continent, from one culture can be impacting others. And we also share what we learn. Our shared knowledge comes from shared experiences. But all these acronyms, I think today we're going to have a little bit of a lesson on acronyms. So, eliberar, actually, I never can say it right. Say it correctly. Eliberare. Eliberare is a CSO. So, tell us what a CSO is. A CSO would be used interchangeably with NGO, which might be an acronym that you're more familiarized with, but it means civil society organization. And civil society organization terminology is becoming more common, and it actually reframes something from a negative. If we say non-governmental, we're actually creating some 
divide between who's doing what. But civil society organizations are coming to the table in the public square. And I like the move to that kind of terminology. So I have started using CSO, but I forget to explain why I'm using it. And I think another thing that we can look at is the power behind it, because another way of saying this, referring to the civil society, is the third sector. So it's finally recognizing the power that we have to come at the table as organizations that are working on different issues and to have our voices heard. I like that. So I have also been learning more about the European Union Anti-Trafficking Directive. I looked at it some time back and then recently learned that that framework is being revised. And I'm curious what that process is, what the goals are, and where we are on that, because I know it will help us in other parts of the world. So the process is pretty lengthy, and I'm going to try to put that in just a nugget. Yeah, this is a short (laughs) podcast. People have to be able to get to work before the end of it. Uh, So the European Commission comes out, proposes uh, the revision. They're being discussed in the Council of the European Union, which is basically different stakeholders from the member states who will vote on this. And then the revision will actually be adopted and become another piece of legislation, this directive specifically. So right now where we are in the process is that the European Commission proposed changes to this particular legislation that in a way governs the legal framework for anti-trafficking in Europe. And this is very important. Why? Because we've waited a very long time for this change to happen. The directive came out in 2012. And if we look at the field, that's an extremely long time to actually not look and not revise legislation that governs how we deal in this particular field. It looks at prevention. It looks at prosecutions. It it looks even at the types of human trafficking that are recognized as a form of this crime. So it's long overdue. (laughs) Also, um, it would have been interesting to see if we didn't just need a new directive, but that's, as you said, a discussion for another time. I'm creating here space uh, for you to invite me again to speak on this. (laughs) But basically what we're looking at is how do we update the legislation, first of all? How do we bring it into the present days? Also, one thing that I want to look at is how do we inform this piece of legislation with the survivors who have actually suffered through this form of crime, specifically in Europe? And then how do we check some of the obligations that have been brought by the first form and are still not realized? So, for Mm. example, in 2012, the directive was talking about a uniform set of indicators, Right. And as you know, in Europe, uh, the different legislations from the different member states can make it so that in a country, a person who is in a form of exploitation is a victim and can access services. But in another one, they could be treated as a perpetrator because the legislative framework is not uniform and the indicators are not the same. So in a way, it creates it creates this imbalance and almost a discrimination of victims of human trafficking, depending on the place of their exploitation. 
So this is high time for us to look at some of these inconsistencies and figure out how to fix them because ultimately we need to share the responsibility among member states and figure out how to make this a level playing field and give all victims of human trafficking the same opportunity, quote unquote, to be identified, to access services and to be referred forward so that they can go to the next phase of their healing process. Okay, so how many member states are we talking about? 27. 27 member states. So finding agreement between 27 different countries with various cultures and various resources is part of the challenge because it's been more than a decade, 2012, now we're 2023. So what do we need to encourage to see the successful revision of this framework? I think there are several aspects. First of all, we need the CSOs that we talked about earlier, Uh the civil society, to come together and actually contribute from a practitioner standpoint with the reality of our day-to-day jobs, right? I think a lot of times legislators don't necessarily have the practical experience of working in the field that they're legislating in. And this is not a problem and it's not only in Europe, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of times decision makers are necessarily subject experts, subject matter experts in all of the things that they need to legislate on. So how can we become a resource and make sure that the experience from the grassroots, from the day-to-day, from the trenches, so to speak, is actually mirrored in the measures that are being put in place. I think we also need to make sure that we invite survivors at the table because too many times what we're doing is we're talking about survivors instead of inviting them into the conversation, listening and learning from them. And then also, I think we need to figure out the realistic goals. So rather than talking about this utopic or ideal situation, we need to figure out what is be what is doable right now in this context. If we look at Europe, we're facing some challenges that are unprecedented in recent history, right? We're seeing the biggest move of people since the Second World War because of the Ukrainian humanitarian crisis and the war of aggression of Russia against Ukraine. So that's really changing the way that we're looking at things and it's shifting the dynamics. So we need to take that into consideration. Europe has become a producer of online child sexual exploitation material. So if before the framework was just looking at the uh, people who are maybe paying for this or the different servers that were hosting this, now we're seeing that these are new challenges. So how do we actually make sure that what we're revising right now, and it took us 12 years to get to this point, right? Almost 12 years. How do we make sure that it's going to be valid next year? So how do you have, one, the reality of the field reflected, but two, the foresight to actually understand the measures that are being needed for both the, both the prevention piece, the prosecution piece, and the protection piece? Okay. Wow. That is very clear. And I hope as a listener, you're thinking about how those elements can be integrated in your local conversations. And then from the perspective, one more acronym, 
the way I understand it, there is one more organization that is leading substantive change in this area, OSCE. What does that acronym pertain to? We really do love our acronym acronyms in this field, right? So Organization for Security and Cooperation in, in Europe is actually this body that also has not one, but two uh, portfolios leading on anti-trafficking. One would be the SR. Here's another acronym for you, the Special Representative on Anti-Human Trafficking. And this seat seats under the Secretariat in Vienna. And then the Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights, which is in Warsaw, also has an advisor on human trafficking. So these two bodies have led different reforms. What's interesting about the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in, in Europe, is that it actually has 57 member states, which means that the different policy papers or different recommendations that are going out are going out and informing 57 governments, including the U.S. government. So not just EU states, but also larger European states and the United States. Wow. Okay, let's talk about the specific areas under OSCE that pertain to anti-human trafficking. What are they? I think one thing that is worth mentioning, and this is an observation that could work globally, actually, the OSC Action Plan on human trafficking or on anti-human trafficking has just marked its 20th anniversary. So some of the main pieces of legislation or recommendations or bylaws that we're using to guide us in this movement are 20 or more than 20 years old, right? I'm sure that you've discussed the Palermo Protocol, which is the main UN legislation. That's also 20 years plus. I'm sure you've talked about the TVPA, which is the legislation here in the U.S., and how that has also marked its 20th anniversary a few years ago, actually. So what we're seeing is that we need to update those things. So the the human trafficking, the, the plan on, the action plan on addressing trafficking in human beings, THB, another acronym, yeah. that sits under the OSE and it was one of its guiding documents. I got to speak at the 20th anniversary of it. And in a way, it was both a momentous occasion to understand that some of the provisions are still standing. And it was also extremely concerning because some of the challenges mentioned there are still very much valid today. So in a way, I think it's a good moment to assess and figure out what are the things that will move the needle, right? That will help us make strides in in our work and in our efforts. So whether we're talking about the role of CSOs, the role of civil society organizations, how do they actually have an equal seat at the table? And they're not just being called in whenever it's comfortable or just to make sure that we check another representative at a certain event. But how do we make sure that the work and the voice is valued and it's taken into consideration? It talks about the need for collaboration when it comes to the pathways of identifying victims. And this brings me to one of the greatest challenges that we're facing in the movement, the fact that we're actually identifying less than 1% of victims globally. 
So the plan covers all these things and it works on it. And the role of the office of the special representative, the way that I understand it, is to actually help states put in place legislation or different provisions to make sure that things are are moving, right? That we're moving the needle, as mentioned. And then the anti-trafficking advisor that's sitting under the Office for Democratic Institution and Human Rights is leading on the human dimension of it. So it actually houses the International Survivors of Trafficking Advisory Council, ESTAC, which has a number of survivors. Proud to say that one of my colleagues from Eliberare is a member for this cohort. And it really gives survivors a seat at the table and allows them to speak into the different recommendations and different policy papers that are going out to 57 states. Like the governments of 57 countries are looking at what these survivors have to say, which I think is extremely important. And it's a good practice model that should be kept. It also does trainings. I was extremely honored to be a part of the training team that got to train on the the first responders in the Ukrainian uh, crisis. So uh, it's doing trainings on how to identify potential cases of human trafficking. And it also owns the concept of a national referral mechanism with the different pillars and the different elements of it. Okay. So define a national referral mechanism. So the the easiest way to explain this without using more acronyms <laughs> um, is to actually think of it as the victim's journey. So a national referral mechanism looks at everything from indicators. So what are the signs, the warning signs that we should look for? How do we actually detect and notify a case. So figuring out how to pass on information towards law enforcement, if the um, victim wants to cooperate, figure out the justice piece. It looks at the services that a victim can be referred towards. It looks at the statute of a victim, like what makes somebody a presumed or a certified victim of human trafficking, which is you know, it's key in order for them to access their rights and to be able to be referred towards services. And then it looks at what does rehabilitation look like? What does it mean? It looks at justice in a way that's more than just the criminal justice, (laughs) um, other ways of redress and so on. So literally, if you think of a victim's journey towards becoming a survivor, towards thriving, towards becoming somewhat autonomous, which should be the goal eventually, a national referral mechanism should cover all that journey. Sounds like a roadmap. That's a great way to explain it. Yeah. Well, and I'm borrowing that from some of our protocols here in uh, California and our task forces. So I want to go back and revisit one of the arms of the OSCE, the Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights. And can you, I know we don't have much time left, but I really do believe that the focus on human rights is a major contributor to how we build 
more momentum and understand that we are focused in a victim-centered approach on building capacity for someone to access their human rights, to understand that they do have human rights. Yes, we want to put the perpetrators away. We want someone to suffer criminal justice. But as you mentioned in the referral mechanism process, our goal is to restore someone's human rights so that they can be autonomous. And I think that includes restitution. And without an understanding of the person and their human rights, they are, we're all part of the same human race. So that was a really long way to get back to this and give you two sentences to answer. Well, and you speak about this oftentimes, right? Mm -hmm. I think a good example is to look at human trafficking, not just for the purpose of sexual exploitation, but also look at human trafficking for labor exploitation, for example. In those cases, just by talking to victims of this particular form of the crime, I know that getting their money for what they've worked is something extremely, extremely important for those people. Oftentimes, in a lot of countries, especially in the European Union, that means civil justice. It doesn't mean criminal justice. Mm. So that's why we need to look at it holistically. I think another concept that we should explore more is the kaleidoscopic justice, where we're also looking at how do we make sure that there's justice in the community for the victims? How do we ensure they're not being blamed, like victim blaming, taking that away? figuring out to how we create spaces in which victims are actually, well, victims and survivors are actually being listened to when it comes to what makes them feel like they are being treated justly and that their rights are respected. And then the other piece, I'll, I'll count that as one sentence. <laughs> the second one would be the point on actually teaching people their rights. And this should start at a very, very early age. We need to make sure that education starts at a very, even in the elementary school, right? And we discuss about this because with victims of human trafficking, unfortunately, a lot of them, the normalcy that they experience is one of abuse and exploitation from a very early age. So telling them that this is your right without actually explaining how that works and how they can access those rights is not necessarily helpful. So how do we put hands and feet and make this concept of justice extremely graspable for everyone? Mm, that's so good. And I, I think that the ISTOC, the Survivor, International Survivors of Trafficking Advisory Council, are really helpful in helping us develop and understand the process. How many survivors serve on that advisory council? I believe it's anywhere between 22 and 24, oh. but you would have to check. You would have to go and research. And I actually encourage you to do so because their work is super interesting and reading their bios and finding out more 
will also give you an answer to this question. Well, and and I kind of have an ulterior motive in asking that question because sometimes I've observed, I'm not like calling anybody out, but people are encouraged to have survivor leaders. So an organization, a government, whatever will say, oh, we have a survivor. You have one survivor. Maybe if your budget allows and you're able to, you have three survivors. But the idea that survivors from different countries, cultures, and continents may not have the same experience, you might be missing some some input that would help make your response more holistic and complete. And so the size of this advisory council, I really feel is an advantage. And we can't afford to have 22, 25 survivor advisors here at the Global Center for Women and Justice. So I want to learn from that community. And this is a way I can do that. Absolutely. And I think one thing that's important to note is that ISTA comes out with publications. So these, in a way, become a way of actually being survivor-informed and survivor-centered. And it doesn't cost us anything. It just costs us our willingness to learn. And the other piece, I think you've described tokenistic survivor engagement very, very well. When we have this one person that we always put out that we sometimes more often than not, ask them to tell their stories, so on and so forth, just so we can check and feel better about ourselves or our organization. Because look at us, right? We have a survivor leader or an expert by experience. But I think we need to learn from such examples, such as ESTAC that has survivors of sexual exploitation, survivors of labor exploitation, and how it actually engages with the survivors in a very meaningful way. Wow. Okay. I just looked at the clock and we are out of time. I want to remind you that you can go back and listen to this interview with Ioana 282 to learn more about Compass and Ukraine. We have so much to learn. I'm going to get links to everything that we've talked about here to put in the show notes. But the first place I'm going to go is to complete my homework. I've just been assigned to go and look at the eStock web page to read and to understand and learn more about who is there because their expertise, their lived experience is important to all of us. Can't thank you enough for joining us. I'm excited to keep this relationship and partner with you. For those listening, we're inviting you to take the next step. Go over to endinghumantrafficking.org. That's where you can find the resources we've mentioned and so much more. You can take a look at the Anti-Human Trafficking Certificate Program that Ioana completed and find out what you can do and join our community by becoming a subscriber. And we'll see you again in two weeks.